Today's scripture reading comes from New Testament, Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. Please follow along on your Bible or the screen. Hear the word of God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore tree, fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that day. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Save the last, lost. Amen. Thanks, Jay. Uh, so today is a, a special Sunday. Um, before I introduce our speaker for today, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of background about uh, what this Sunday is about. So we have a, uh, a team at our church called the Justice and Mercy Team. It's, it's a ministry. Uh, and our mission, uh, or the mission of the team, is bringing hope and relief uh, by raising awareness and providing support. And basically what we do is we uh, do three essential things. First thing is when there's uh, natural disasters around the world or, or man-made disasters, uh, we try to, uh, depending on which one we uh, felt led to kind of support, uh, we'll do a fundraising drive, we'll do matching uh, donations and things like that. So that's one, w one thing we do, disaster relief. The second thing we do is we try to raise awareness for certain things like uh, sex trafficking and, and things like that. And lastly, uh, we also assist people within our community uh, if they go through crisis. Uh, sometimes people, no fault of their own, they, 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 they hit a financial crisis and uh, we have some funds to try to uh, help them to walk through them, uh, with them through the crisis and, and uh, also provide for them uh, financial uh, counseling and things like that. And uh, this event, uh, which we hold about once a year, uh, comes out of that. Uh, we realize that uh, sometimes, actually all of us probably in here, can use a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of assistance when it comes to our financial health. Uh, and God actually, Jesus talks about finances more than any other topic. Actually, the Bible talks about finances more than any other topic, uh, than more than sex and all that stuff. So we feel like it, uh, this is a very important topic, and we wanted to uh, get somebody who is skilled in this area uh, to, to help us, to advise us, and to teach us what God says about it. And so that's why we have uh, this Sunday. Uh, it's just a financial Sunday, and we also have a seminar that's going to be afterward, which I'll just mention in a second. But before I, I do that, I just want to introduce our guest speaker. His name is Reverend Paul Jang. Uh, he's actually a, a pastor at a local church, the Church Gathered and Scattered. I think they're in Teaneck, right? They're in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, he's been there for a couple of years now. Uh, he's actually a good friend of mine. We went to seminary together at Princeton Theological Seminary. We lived in the same dorm for a couple of years. We, we had some fun times back then. Uh, he is... Uh, he struck me, when, I remember when I f was first starting to get to know him, and then even the years after I you know, became his friend, he struck me as one of the most uh, thoughtful uh, seminarians around. Uh, a lot of seminarians are pretty crazy, they have really strong beliefs, but uh, Paul was very, always very uh, sensible, always very balanced, uh, and he, 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 sh he struck me as a man with a lot of integrity, which uh, I think fits well with uh, what he's doing uh, right now. His side passion, uh, from, besides being a pastor, is actually um, helping people with their financial lives, right? Uh, uh, being stewards of, of the resources that God has given them. And he's a, a certified financial coach. He's going to give us a sermon today, but I also want to highlight a, the seminar. After service, he's going to be holding a, a special seminar uh, in one of the classrooms in the academic wing. Uh, and what he's going to do in that seminar is he's, he's, going, to, he's going to give us tips for managing our personal finances and uh, trying to live healthy financial lives. Uh, I actually 
would talk to him and have conversations about my financial health, and I used a couple of his tips, and he's actually helped me from spiraling down into debt. So it's very uh, helpful tips. I, I, rec I highly recommend you guys attend this. There will be childcare available, which will be myself and Alex. We will be watching your children in the cafeteria. Okay, I do have experience with children, just so you know. Uh, so please do take advantage of that. Uh, and he's not selling you any products, okay? He's really here to help you guys with your financial lives. So, so without further ado, please, let's give him a round of applause as he comes up to the front. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Would you uh, join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Lord God, as we started this morning singing songs, just praising you, how we trust you, how we learn to trust you. Lord, as we have just heard your words read now, as we come before you, as it's preached, would you speak to our hearts where we are uniquely in our journey, whatever we are wrestling with. And if there are things in our hearts, especially that we're wrestling in terms of finance, Lord, show us how to trust you more than what you have entrusted us. Help us to trust the giver more than the gift and show us how to manage them well for your approval as we make eternal deposits with eternal rewards. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to start with a little bit of confession. Um, I have to confess that growing up and even now to a certain extent, um, spending money makes me feel very uneasy, uh, probably for the majority of my life. And probably it has a lot to do with growing up in a family um, that didn't have a whole lot. Now. The word I would use, poor, by definition, in an American, North American sense, not in a world scale where literally people are starving and dying because of their poverty. Um, growing up in a pastor's family, I felt poor, and um, I knew that I couldn't afford to buy most of the stuff that I wanted. Um, I wish I could say, as a Christian family, we live with this deep conviction knowing of the eternal rewards that would await us. But to be honest, uh, while that played a part, um, there was enough resentment and probably shame. Um, I struggled to trust in the gospel, and I struggled to really trust in the eternal rewards that Scripture spoke of. Now, don't get me wrong, I never lacked clothes on my back, never lacked food on my table, my heavenly father and my earthly parents always provided what we needed, just not a lot of what I wanted. Um, we didn't go out eating. Uh, we didn't wear brand name clothes. Um, but as I look back, part of that experience and the money script growing up has made me who I am, and in some ways, probably have helped me not to squander money. The only issue now is I learned to wrestle in letting go because I find, if I'm not careful, a greater sense of security in what I have amassed by God's grace and feeling peace in the size of what I might have amassed instead of finding true peace in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself. It's kind of funny and sad at the same time because as I look back to my adulthood, even, you know, I would save up money for a particular purchase. Um, and when that day comes where I, I can spend the money that I have saved up to make that purchase that I've been waiting for, as much as there was a part that I would enjoy that product or service, there was also this part in me that really uh, didn't feel good as I knew that that amount that I had saved up was going to disappear through that purchase transaction. 
I would save up emergency fund in case of those days when it would rain, emergencies happen. And instead of being able to celebrate and thank God, God, thank you that you have disciplined me well so that now that this health scare, this family emergency, whatever happens, I can use what I have saved up. But again, instead of being thankful and being at peace, I would feel upset. Man, now I have to deplete that emergency fund, and I'm going to have to fill it up again. I would say with my mouth, and I would even think in my heart that I find true security in the Prince of Peace who came to redeem and restore my relationship with Heavenly Father. But deep down, I would wrestle with that true sense of peace. I am what you would call a security seeker. Any security seekers like me out there? I see a couple of hands. Thank you for commiserating. Um, Security seekers are often savers, and we may have the appearance of, typically because we handle money usually better, we save instead of uh, spending a lot. Um, And because we have the outer perception of handling money well, people think we are okay. However, underneath the surface, there is this deep-seated sense of insecurity, motivated by fear and often operating out of poverty mindset. I have to pray through this on a regular basis because my heart wanders away from trusting in the Lord We sometimes allow our past experience of money to impact us now and continue to live in fear. I am a follower of Christ, a recovering security seeker, saver, who often finds himself seeking security in money than God. I'm still learning. I'm still failing. I'm fumbling through to both understand and to live out what this life of generosity is supposed to look like. We say we believe in a generous God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and sacrificed his son, yet here I am. Here we are. Having a hard time repenting from that clenching fist And perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, for those of us who grew up not experiencing boundaries, limitations, we get anything we want and everything we want, and we can't understand why we can't have it now. Both, whether we are gripped by fear or captured by our desires and not knowing what it means to live with biblical contentment, the most often out-of-context cited scripture, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, that Apostle Paul speaks of, is about biblical contentment. Whether we have a lot or we have nothing, I can do all things. I want to be more generous to my family, my friends. I want to be more generous toward kingdom matters for kingdom eternal rewards. I want to be able to see the Lord at the end of my life and him looking at me. I want him to say, Paul, good job, faithful servant. But I still wrestle. Do you wrestle with money? Pastor Key mentioned about the frequency in which Scripture speaks about money. He's right. Scripture speaks about money more than any other subject period. I want to be able to give more than just my first tenth, my tithe. It's a great start, but it's a start. I want to be able to truly invest in eternal things where moth cannot eat up or rust can't destroy or thieves cannot break in. God wants us to have eternal rewards. He wants us to store up treasures, but just in the right place. So the question I want to ask us today 
how would you describe your relationship with money? What does our relationship with money say about our relationship with the generous God in the person of Jesus Christ? Is there a relationship? A seasoned stewardship teacher by the name of Ron Blue said this. He said, financial decisions you make are the most objective measurement of spirituality there is. Let me repeat that again. Financial decisions you make are the most objective measurements of spirituality there is. If you believe God owns it all, when you spend his money, in effect, you are making a spiritual decision. So we look at our tax return and what we do with it. We look at our checking account. If you don't use checking account as frequently, you look at your credit card statement. Those things indicate what we truly value. What we actually end up spending money is the things that we treasure. So what kind of questions are you asking God as you are managing his treasures? Today's passage um, is a familiar passage. Probably all grew up listening, for those of us who went to church, uh, sorry, Zacchaeus, the, the short little tax collector. I resonate with you know, vertical challenge in this a lot, so I remember him vividly. And here's a chief tax collector who was basically collaborating with the Roman government, and here is one with a specific detail emphasizing he was very rich. He chose wealth. He pursued wealth as the ultimate. He let go of his pursuit of religious community, relationship with God, social standing. Instead, he sought out financial freedom as the ultimate thing. I don't think he is that different from many of us in our generation who also seek out financial success, wealth, financial security at the cost of sacrificing our relationship with God, our families, our uh, community of faith for that what? certain home in a certain neighborhood, certain zip code, that special vacation, certain brand name car, just to name a few things. You see, Zacchaeus, he has been searching. He's been on a quest all his life. He sought out the ultimate thing in wealth. And now he had it. It didn't quite meet his expectation. Maybe some of us, you've reached that point. Some of us were still reaching to see what it tastes like. He got there, and it was vacuous, empty. And now he does whatever he's been doing. When he's focused, he goes after. And here now he's seeking Jesus because he heard about this Jesus who hung out with sinners like him. No one else would hang out with people like him. He wasn't able to enter a congregation, a temple. He wasn't able to be part of a community. But here, he heard about Jesus, so he sought him out. But knowing perhaps what people would think of him, what, would, what they would say of him, to him, he didn't go to the crowd. Instead, he took a different route. Perhaps he knew what... They would, maybe he will, um, they would call him by a different name. We've all been called names before. And maybe he just didn't want to deal with that. So instead, he sought out the path that Jesus would take. He calculated. And he reasoned that he would come to a certain place. So he went to that spot, climbed that sycamore fig tree. Adults don't do this. But he didn't care at that point. He just knew that he had to get a glimpse of this Jesus that people spoke of, who showed kindness to people like him that he hadn't experienced before, perhaps for a very, very long time. You see, he thought he was playing in this game of hide-and-go-seek. He thought he was it. But when he got to that tree and he was waiting, and when Jesus and the crowd began walking over, Instead of just passing by, instead of Zacchaeus finally just getting a glimpse of Jesus' face, oh, wow, that's what he looks like. Jesus stopped. 
he looked up. He called Zacchaeus by name. I, maybe it has been a long time since he has been called by his name, at least in a loving, respectful way. And he called them by name. He invited himself into his house. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I have to stay in your house. I must stay in your house. That word must is a very special word. Grammatically, it's called divine imperative. It means basically it's divinely planned that this is supposed to happen. All this time, Zacchaeus thought he was the one searching because that's what he's been doing all his life. When he wanted something, when he, when he thought something was it, he went for it at the cost of everything else. And here now, as an older man, chief tax collector, filthy rich, but no standing before God, no standing between a community, he climbs a tree, he doesn't care, and he hears from the mouth of Jesus that it is divinely planned that I stay in your house. You see, Jesus wasn't walking through that road in Jericho by accident. It was divinely planned. Jesus didn't enter human history some 2,000 years ago by accident. It was planned by Heavenly Father, who so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus has been on the quest, searching for Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus for the first time gets that it's God who's been looking for him. And says, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus experienced radical grace from this generous God in the person of Jesus like he has never experienced before. He has experienced hatred. He has experienced mockery, derision, whatever you could imagine. But this he hasn't. And he's brought to Jesus. He's brought to the gospel, and his heart is transformed. And he turns around. He repents. And there is a change in his life. There's a radical change in the way we see his life, especially in the way he's been relating with wealth and finances. If we say Jesus is our Savior, then he demands to be our Lord. And if he is our Lord, he demands lordship in all things, including our finances. If you meet, I don't know how many of us here are in financial industry, whether you are a financial advisor working for a particular company or um, whatever, but even, you know, I, I serve as a financial coach also. If you talk with people, the typical financial path to comfort and security looks like this. Um, get out of debt, especially consumer debt, because you're paying high interest anywhere from 20 to 25%, build up an emergency fund because it's going to rain. It's just a question of when, not if. And these things are actually good biblical things. If you read through the book of Proverbs, we are told again and again, don't be foolish. A borrower is slave to the lender. I've been there. It is horrible being slave to my lender because of my debt, because I didn't want to wait until I had the money to get the things I wanted. Financial advisors would say, invest in a home, and if you are into property, invest in properties that you could also uh, bring in a good cash flow, invest in retirement saving, and if you are entrepreneurial, then invest in a business, and if you're a Christian, you should tithe. Some of us here are probably working to get out of debt, that's a good thing. Some of us are building up an emergency fund, that's a good thing. 
Some of us, we have invested in our home. Some of us, we are planning to invest in our home. Some of us are just beginning to uh, put money into 401k. Some of us are maxing out our 401k. These are great, prudent things that wise people are encouraged to do. But if you're like me, maybe you think, well, okay, I do that, and then I'm going to give my first tenth, and the rest of the 90%, I'm going to do what I want. Um, But again, Scripture speaks of God owning everything, not just 10%, but everything. Recently in the past year, year and a half, one of the things that I've been wrestling with, thinking about and praying as I go to churches, as I coach uh, families, individuals, it's a question of, is this financial path to security and comfort, is it helping us to draw closer to God or away from God? Is this financial path to security and comfort leading people of God away from God or to God? After all, Jesus says some harsh, serious things about money. One of the brothers I was speaking with this morning before I started says, yeah, just don't hold back. Just give it to us. And Jesus gives it to us. He says in um, Luke 16, 11, 12, that if we have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And he finishes with this. You cannot serve God and money. And here I am. As a Christian, as a pastor, yet still struggling to release. There were those in the Bible who were at the high end of spectrum in terms of financial stability. There are people like the rich young ruler. You have Judas Iscariot. You have the rich fool, the rich man. You have the church in Laodicea. You have Ananias and Sapphira, just to name a few who though were positioned well financially, they were positioned away from God. Their wealth did not help them draw closer to God. It was the opposite. And the other end of the spectrum, you have people in the low end of the spectrum. You had people like Apostle Paul who literally lost everything in shipwreck. And as he's heading to Rome, he has nothing. You have people like the poor widow who's mentioned who has two copper pennies left You have the church in Macedonia who are financially poor, yet through God's grace, they're positioned towards God. And there are people like Cornelius, Lydia, today's reading, Zacchaeus, who though were on the high end of a financial spectrum, stability spectrum, They were positioned toward God. If you are a saver like me, saving money and accumulating money in the name of financial prudence will easily take over your heart. We will naturally, because sanctification is still at at work here, if we're not careful, we will trust more in the saving than in Jesus Christ. John Cortines, author of God and Money, subtitle is How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. He came out with a second book. Um, Both books are great. True Riches, What Jesus Really Said About Money and Your Heart. He does a modern rendition of the rich fool, and this is what he says. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, obviously, teacher, Tell my boss to say the full, to pay the full year-end performance bonus he promised me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge and arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. By the way, 10th commandment is against covetousness, just to remind us. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The stock options belonging to a manager vested after a major run-up in share prices. And he thought to himself, 
what shall I do? For I already have enough saved to send my kids to college. My house is paid off. And I already max out my 401k every year. And he said, I will do this. I will open an investment account and create a passive income portfolio. And I'll exercise my options and put the money there. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have a big enough portfolio to be financially independent, retire early, plan some vacation, play golf. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the portfolio you built, what will it be then? So is the one who endlessly builds his net worth and is not rich toward God. Are you more like me? Or are you perhaps at the other end of the spectrum? You are a spender. People in your life with all the best intention didn't serve you well, didn't set limits, and maybe you spend too much money because you've never learned how to curb your appetite to know limits in what you can purchase. If you are like that, then you need to grow in what it means to be content. Biblical contentment. Being able to enjoy the great things God gives you, but when you don't have the means, when your income ends here, then being content with what you have been entrusted because that is for this season what God has entrusted you to manage for his approval and be okay with that and be able to give thanks to God for this set of limitation, the gift of limit that he has given you now. What if instead of seeing ourselves as savers, spenders, go back to the more biblical word, stewards, managers of God's treasures for his approval. So instead of asking, "Mm, how much should I give? What if we begin to ask, how much should we keep? Zacchaeus has changed. Before he worshiped money and wealth, and he pursued that at the cost of everything else in his life. Now, as he experienced this amazing, generous love of God and the person of Jesus Christ, he has been released. Now he's able to donate half of his possessions to the poor and repay four times the money he had taken wrongly. Before, the goal was to accumulate as much wealth as possible, thinking that's going to give him happiness, fulfillment, whatever he thought he was after, whatever he thought it could deliver. But now, and at at the expense of people around him, but now he's been released from that captivity. He's been loosened from the power of mammon, money. Bible would say, Scripture and the rabbis in those times would typically say if you wrong someone, you would pay back what you took plus about 20% in addition. That would be considered reasonable. But here, he's committing to four times the amount, 400%. And in addition, he is promising to give half of his possession to the poor. Now, before this, Jesus commands the rich young ruler to give all of his possession. Here, Jesus doesn't command Zacchaeus to do anything. Here, Zacchaeus, out of his experience of the amazing love of God through Jesus Christ and that interaction, that calling, self-invitation to his home, he responds to do this. He doesn't want to take advantage of people anymore. In fact, now he wants to do right. He's getting what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the kind of life that we're called to live. The gospel of grace from this generous God leads us to a generous life, life of repentance. I cannot 
if you say you are a follower of Christ, if you say you have been captured and captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sin, that his death on the cross and empty tomb restores us to our heavenly father who made it us to have this communion with him, we cannot stay the same. In God's time, fruit needs to be seen. And I need to, we need to continue in that process of repenting, turning away from things that holds us. And that includes, it cannot exclude money. Because one of the things that competes against God the most is money. For Zacchaeus, his salvation, for salvation has come into this household. Salvation has deep personal implication, has deep social and economic implication. It's not like, okay, Jesus, I appreciate what you do, what you did in welcoming me. Thank you. Now I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. It can't do that. When we begin to treasure Christ above everything else, we cannot still remain the same. The idols of our lives cannot still hold that kind of primacy anymore. As human beings, we're driven, I mean, this is a broad generalization, but we're driven by three basic desires. We want success, we want to be significant, and we want to be secure. But no amount of wealth will make us feel successful. You'll need a little more. No amount of wealth will make you feel significant or even secure. Some of you guys who are just beginning to work, you think, if I just like, save up a million, maybe. Well, wait till you get there. You're going to save maybe another five or another ten. There's no number that will make you feel that. You might be there, but you would never feel secure. You would never feel quite significant. You would never feel quite successful because you would feel maybe a little more. And another set of questions that people ask, especially as we get closer to the retirement age, is this question of, uh, will I ever have enough? It's like, Paul, do you think I will ever have enough with where I am now? Follow up. Will it continue to be enough? Because what if it gets all spent? But the final question that people don't quite know is, it's like, how much is enough? What kind of lifestyle do you want to live will dictate what that enough will look like? But most of us don't know. As Christ followers, if you say, if we say that we believe in Jesus as our Savior, if we say we follow him as our Lord, then the foremost, the primary question that you've got to start with is a question of who owns it. It's an ownership question. I think I preached like a year ago on this very thing. It's an ownership question before anything else. If you don't get this question right, everything else really doesn't matter. It's a question of ownership. Who owns it? And then it becomes a question of how much is enough? How much is enough for you, single person? How much is it enough for you, married person? How much is it enough for you, married with children? How much is enough for you? Wherever season of life you are, do you know? And the next question that people often don't think about or even prepare well is, how is the next steward chosen and how are they trained? We do a very great disservice for those of us who might be financially well. And in our great intentions of blessing children, we do great disservice by not teaching them about biblical stewardship, giving whatever they want. That does no service in the long run. If you are on that path to get out of debt, 
I applaud you. Keep at it. If you are in debt and you're beginning to save up some emergency fund, whether a month to three months, three months to six months, as you're drawing closer to retirement age, maybe anywhere from one to three years of cash to whatever else that you, you, you want to get ready for, great, do it. If you're ready to buy a home, invest in retirement, do it, but do it prayerfully. And no, be warned because our hearts our hearts are going to wander away if we're not careful. That financial security can be used to help us point to God, but if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, if we're not humble, if we're not reflecting about what's here, if you're not aware about what, how you relate with money and what money does to you and how you interact with it, then it's going to lead you the other path, the other way. Those of us who are pleasure-seeking and comfort-seeking, you would probably be spending most aggressively. You'll be saving modestly, and you'll be giving modestly to the kingdom. For those of us who are security-seeking, stability-seeking, you'll be spending modestly, and you'll be giving modestly but instead you'll be saving aggressively because that's where you find your greatest comfort. So whether you find greatest comfort in spending because in getting certain things, whether it's a product or a service, this adrenaline kicks in and this temporary satisfaction kicks in and it will be a never-ending cycle because after that, you're going to need some other fix. Or at the other end of the spectrum where you continue to amass and build up, yet true peace it's going to be really hard to find. And here Jesus teaches us what it means to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And if we pursue that, again, Jesus is not about, he's not against rewards. He's not against treasures. He's not against that. It's just the right place in eternal kingdom. If we get that, then we will give for the kingdom causes aggressively save modestly, and spend modestly. I think that's what biblical stewardship is about. If you are on that trajectory, that path of financial security that's away from God, you will experience more pride. You will experience more covetousness. You will experience more anxiety. And at the end, the worst place is apathy and indifference. But if we are on that path, financial peace toward God, then you will experience greater gratitude, greater contentment, being able to enjoy great things when it comes our way, but learn to be content when all we have is what we have and nothing more. We'll be able to trust God more, love Him more. And yes, even in that position, be able to give generously and sacrificially. Because it's always about ratio, not the amount. It's not the amount you give, it's the ratio of what that is in your season. So, what if we ask? The question of not how much should I give, but how much should I keep to know the size of the cup to provide for your family? How much do we need to keep to support our family and at the same time be able to give generously and sacrificially for kingdom purpose? Um, I know a lot of people, and I'm sure you do too, who've gone through radiation um, chemotherapy, radiation is a powerful thing. When it's harnessed well and correctly, it can be used to help people. But if not, it will be extremely lethal. Wealth is like that. In my experience working with people who are generous, what I'm challenged with is they're, they're captured by the gospel 
they're captivated by the love of God. They give spontaneously, but more than spontaneously, they give intentionally and systematically. I think Brother Jay mentioned about setting up um, something that's systematic. Truly generous people think about how to be generous intentionally. They don't wait till all the expenses are taken and see what's remaining and see, man, that neighbor across the street, like, I know they need help, but because I've spent it all, I don't have the means to help. Truly generous people don't, they're not reactive. They're proactive. They plan. They set aside. They're intentional. They think about the kind of how big should my cup be for my family? They know what they need at this current season to provide for their family. They know the size of their cup. And whatever God gives in excess, they have determined that's going to be given to the Lord and to the people in need. They ask on a regular basis, why should I be generous? Because we have a generous God. They ask, how do I do generosity? Practically. They ask, where should I give generously? They do research. They look for places and organizations and people that they know will have ultimately the greatest eternal reward. Because again, Jesus isn't against reward. There's a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. How many of you guys have heard of Humphrey Monmouth? That was exactly the same. I didn't know Humphrey Monmouth either until I read a book about him about a year and a half ago. Um, I was thinking about and just researching on generosity, and it came to this book titled Gospel Patrons by uh, John Reinhardt. Um, Humphrey Monmouth is one of the unsung heroes of faith in the Reformation. Now, you probably heard of John Calvin, Martin Luther. I named my kids after them. My sons are named Martin and Calvin. But... Uh, I know it's a bit, my, my, my parents said, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? But anyway, um, Monmouth, Humphrey Monmouth lived in the 16th century, and he made a fortune in cloth business. Um, he was a wealthy businessman who had such a massive contribution in his relationship with William Tyndale. William Tyndale, the one who the, considered as a father of English Bible, Tyndale translated the New Testament from original um, Greek, later also um, translated from Hebrew. And for his work, he was eventually martyred in 1536 because translating the Bible from Latin to the English vernacular was illegal. They didn't want average Joes to read the Bible. 90% of King James' Bible comes from Tyndale's translation. You see, Tyndale needed more than just textbooks and inspiration to do the work of translating the Bible. He needed food. He needed clothes. He needed a place to stay. He needed an income to sustain while he did the work. And that's exactly what um, Monmouth did. He, Monmouth provided room, board, financial support, um, especially for the six months in, when he was working on the New Testament. And later on, Tyndale had to flee England for his own safety because he was working on the translation. And he was under the patronage of Humphrey Monmouth. And Monmouth also introduced Tyndale to a secret society of London merchants called the Christian Brethren. And it was this uh, secret society that basically financed and imported um, Christian literature and eventually supported all the work of um, Tyndale's endeavors. Um, and eventually, you know, they used uh, Monmouth's cloth business to smuggle the Bibles back into England when they were published in Europe. Kingdom of God requires preachers and teachers, but also requires businessmen and businesswomen who can serve faithfully 
in this kind of gospel patronage. Monmouth's contribution is no less spiritual and no less vital than the work of Tyndale. If there was no Monmouth, there would have been no Tyndale. You know, Jesus in his three years of ministry, how do you think he ministered? In Luke chapter 8, we see three generous women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, coming along, financing their ministry. They were gospel patrons who provided for Jesus and the disciples' means. In the book of Acts, we meet Priscilla and Aquila, business people. They hosted church um, at their house. They came along, Apollos. They supported and partnered with Paul, risking their lives and their resources. They were gospel patrons. We have books like Gospel of Luke, Book of Acts, because we have gospel patrons like Theophilus, who paid Dr. Luke to do the research, to do the writing. We have a woman named Phoebe who opened up her house to host missionaries as well as churches in her city. She assisted Apostle Paul and others in their financial need. What if, as John Reinhardt in this book, Gospel Patron, what if we look and we live our lives as gospel patrons, God's stewards, generously living out for eternal rewards? where moth can't eat anything up, where rust can't erode or corrode, where thieves can't break in. Instead of just living for now, what at best, 100 years? What if we really live for that eternal mindset, for eternal rewards in the, in the kingdom of God? Jews have done something for a very long time, at the end of their Sabbath on Saturday, um, they would hold this thing called Havdalah service. Um, Havdalah means separation. And this service ceremony they have at the end of Saturday, so before the week begins, right? Um, they, set, they have this ceremony where they ask God to really increase their family's um, offspring and their wealth. And they would pour a cup of wine. This is not a cup of wine. This is what I could find. Closest thing, but that's fine. They would pour a cup of wine over a cup until it overflows. Don't worry, I'm not going to spill it. I'm going to try. So there's overflowing happening. And I'm going to stop there because this saucer is not that big. The cup represents what's needed for their family. And there is an overflow. And what overflows is for those in need. You do need to know, you do need to provide for your family Bible tells us if you don't, you're worse than a heathen, right? However, the problem is many of us, and I work with people all the time, they don't know the size of their cup. So when, let's say, a bonus comes at the end of the year, when a tax return, by the way, if you get tax return, that's not a good thing. That means you gave Uncle Sam too much money. Anyway, um, without interest. So, But if you don't know the size of the cup, when, when God pours more into you, it keeps just flowing to you. It's a cup. Now, it's not a thimble where like everything overflows. It's a cup. It's not a bathtub. It's not a swimming pool. Something has to overflow. But that cup, size of a cup, is between you and God. If you're married, it's between you, your spouse, and God. No one else can tell you that cup is too big, too small. No, that's between you and God and this season of life. But you do need to know the size of the cup for, to be able to recognize that this is for me and my family, 
And what I see on the outside, the overflow is forgiving. You get that? And that size of the cup is really, I know many people don't like this B word, budget, your cash flow. You need to know, you thought of a different word? (laughs) That cup, if you don't know what your family needs, your lifestyle will just continue to go up. You might have great intentions of being generous because we believe in a generous God who so loved us that we can't stay the same. We can't relate money the same way that we've been relating if we say we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But great intentions are not enough because if you don't decide on the size of your cup, you will have nothing flowing. It will just come to you. And at the end of the day, you'll have nothing left because the decision has to be made before you begin to pour. Different season of life, the size of the cup will be different. When you're single, it'll be different. When you're married, it will change. When you have kids, it will change. When your kids are away in college, when you retire, it will change. The most important thing is that you are praying and seeking God to discern, God, how much should I keep for my family now? That you are asking the owner, God, how much should I keep? What is the size of our cup in this season of life? That's between you and God. But it is a question you have to be asking. Because if you don't ask the right question, you will not get the right answer. If you don't ask the size of the cup, then you will just spend it all, whether that means in buying things or saving up, storing up just for yourself. Brothers and sisters, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if New Mercy Palisades moves from having great intentions, which is good, but not enough, to actually positioning our lives as God's managers, God's stewards, knowing that everything belongs to Him, and that you, as His stewards, temporary manager seeking for his approval upon his ultimate return. Ask God together, Lord, how big should my cup be in this season? And God, what are you convicting me? How are you convicting me, convicting us to resource the extra that you have brought our way because you have trusted me to manage them well so that when you come back and see what I have done with what you have entrusted me with, you can say to me, good job, faithful servant. Let's pray. I want to just invite you to take the moment to examine how the Lord has been speaking to you Maybe there are some of us here who have not actually made a commitment in trusting Jesus. Maybe some of us here have been pursuing money. Maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I just just need to try. Maybe God has brought you here through a friend or family who loved you enough to invite you and come. And maybe the Lord is speaking to you and showing the emptiness of our pursuit. And maybe there are many of us here who we say we trust Jesus, but we're having a hard time learning to truly trust 
Trust is different from simple knowing, isn't it, brothers and sisters? How are we really trusting our Lord with His treasure that He owns? Are we just holding tightly or just squandering all because we see our neighbors have it? I must have it. I want to just invite you to take a moment to just um, examine your heart and pray. And then I'll close us with a prayer in a couple of minutes.